Abolition. Abolition. I, I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Uh, we've you know, tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war, by passing uh, landmark civil rights legislation. Uh, we've elected an African-American president. I, I think we're always a work in progress in this country, uh, but no one currently alive was responsible for that. And I don't think we should be uh, trying to figure out uh, how to compensate for it. First of all, it would be pretty hard to figure out who to compensate. We've had waves of immigrants as well who've come to the country and experienced dramatic uh, discrimination of one kind or another. So, no, I don't think reparations are a good idea. My fellow Europeans, a most amazing opportunity has presented itself. It has come by way of the technologies of the, the shipping industry, the, the ability to trade goods from all over the world. If that sounds like an opportunity you'd like to take advantage of, well, here are the details. Let's discover us a new world. Get on a ship and set sail. Bring back things we can sell. All aboard to the new world. Where the lands are free, plant your sugar cane and your coffee. Wake up to the new world. The European appetite, where the choices satisfy or die. More price in the new world. Move heaven and earth. But wait a minute, who gon' do the work in the new world? Great question. The answer came by way of middle passage. The main trade route for enslaved Africans. These days commonly known as human trafficking. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The transatlantic slave trade went this way. Caribbean, South and North America. But not as even as that may relay. 12.5 million kidnapped. Spread over the West. Lean back cause that's a big map. 10.7 survived the trip but it was tough still. Over 40% of the people sold in Brazil alone. How many made it here with you and I call a home? Well, the estimate is 450,000 strong Have you heard the story of the slave ship song? It's an awful tale of an insurance scam gone wrong Yes, policies could be taken on slaves during travel It appears it's lots of rich packing people like cattle The ship made a wrong turn that made it trip longer Supplies ran low when the owners was on the owners Decisions had to be made about what they could afford to do So in three days they murdered 142 They tried to file a claim for their riches And came face to face to a fight with happened this was not a common but unfortunate from African shores to a short bet that will happen to your brother. You're next in the new world. Get on a ship and set sail. Bring back things we can sell all aboard to the new world. Where the lands are free, plant your sugar cane and your coffee. Wake up to the new world. The European appetite for the choices satisfy or die. More price in the new world. Move heaven and earth. But wait a minute, who gon' do the work in the new world? Back in Africa, a few had some answers. Go to war and sell off your enemy if he's captured. A market overseas meant the market on land. The Bristol ship captain gave goods in advance. African traders might leave relatives as hostages. Not returning with slaves will make slaves of hostages. Like all resources used up from occupation and luxury becomes some type of standard obligation. The outcome of the world from robbing the African nation is it ended up itself in massive depopulation. From chiefs and traders raiding small towns to meet needs. Now it's only old men and women sending to the sea. Imagine traveling 5,000 miles on the sea. Shackled on your back. Barely enough air for you to breathe. Chained to a dead man while you laying in the sea. Wondering what life will be if you survive just to make it to the new world. Get on a ship and set sail. Bring back things we can sell all aboard to 
to the new world Where the lands are free Plant your sugar cane and your coffee Wake up to the new world The European appetite For the choices satisfy a dime More price in the new world Move heaven and earth But wait a minute, who gon' do the work in the new world? You just heard a clip of Mitch McConnell entitled, "No One," where he's mentioned, no one alive today is a slaver. And that was followed by Chapter 3, The Atlantic Slave Tree by K.O. featuring Mark S.X. And then that was also followed by Senator McConnell having to eat crow because, come to find out, he's the descendant of enslavers. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. We're also available on all major podcast platforms, and we're simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. What's going on, brother? Peace, brother. I am here at the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center on this Black August, broadcasting live with you. Well, that's awesome. You know, I had some uh, situation, you know, arise last minute, so I'm actually uh, pulled over into a rest stop on the New Jersey Turnpike. So the show must go on. We're going to get this going. Uh, that's so, pretty funky. Yeah, you know, you yeah. you and I have done it before. You know, we did yeah. it in between the mountains in West Virginia, you know, yeah. broadcasting <laughs> on uh, New Abolitionist Radio. So we, we're not new to this. Right. So last week we delved into the tactic of uh, nur- uh, nurturing contempt for the oppressed. And we were joined by Allegra Casimir Taylor, the daughter of Hugo Yogi Pinnell, who spent 47 years in solitary confinement before being assassinated at the age of 70 in prison by white supremacists at New Folsom Prison on August 12, 2015. He was known as one of the San Quentin Six for his resistance efforts under the leadership of the Field Marshal George Jackson. You all want to make sure that you go and check out that episode. It was very powerful. Well, this week, to quote Frederick Douglass, you have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. So on, on the 28th of August, 1833, 
the Slavery Abolition Act was given royal assent and came into force on the following 1st of August, 1834. Its full bill title was an act for the abolition of slavery throughout the British colonies for promoting the industry of manumitted slaves and for compensating the persons hitherto entitled to the services of such slaves. We want to revisit this historical legal act and provide insight into the real reasons for the abolition of the triangle slave slave trade controlled demolition. Now, when it comes to slavery and abolition, everything you've been taught is a lie. Yes, everything you've been taught is a lie. In this episode, truth of what really happened during Black August of 1833 for all to hear. And as is our way on abolition today, we incorporate incredible music and poetry mixes to move the soul and body with tracks from Snoop Dogg, Slick Rick, The Poppy Family, Prince, The Untouchables, Kaggle Sal, Cow, and Mark SX. And of course, we bring the ancestors' words back to life for a new generation of slavery abolitionists. This week, we hear the tale of Frederick Douglass's struggle with the slave breaker, Mr. Covey, at Mount Misery. And if that name sounds familiar, Mount Misery, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago at the death of former Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. Remember, that was his family resident, Mount Misery. So that's why that name sounds familiar. So before we get started, Max, how was your week, brother? Oh, man. Uh, my week is always busy, especially coming up closer and closer to the election period. But there's a lot of stuff going on. And you might even have to help me out with some of it because it's so much. I want to try to go through some of it real quick for everybody. Uh, first of all, the California Abolition Act Coalition is introducing an important project in their fight to end involuntary servitude. It's called Tales from the Plantation, and it's a creative anthology of art and writings on the impact of modern-day slavery in the California prison system. As an important narrative-building campaign tool, the anthology aims to shine a light on the day-to-day realities of forced labor in prison, provide a counter-message to the illusion of choice around prison labor promoted by CDCR, including punishment culture inside, and ultimately underscore why we've got to pass ACA3. Uh, so they're looking for submissions from people and allies, and there's a website that we have available where you can send it in and go check out you know, how to submit. Uh, they're looking for everything from poetry uh, to short stories and essays art pieces, all of that. So check that out and submit. I mean, if you listen to this program and you're an artist, submit it, <laughs> you know? Let's make this thing Great. very powerful. I've already sent in my uh, five poems, and now I'm thinking maybe I can send in an essay too. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so that's the one thing. The next thing is uh, I talk, had a long talk with the Queen Mother of Benin, Her Majesty, the Wolte this mm-hmm. year couple days ago and remember she was supposed to be here and then she got sick as soon as she got in new york basically and she still is going uh through some issues with breathing and congestion and stuff like that and weakness but we have settled for a date so she'll be joining us september 19th she's going to go back to benin and then come back again to the state so on september 15th she gets back and on september 19th she'll be here with us at abolition today all right and here's a big one right my man's in mm-hmm. uh, Dennis Fibo, Guadabara Insights, right? Warrior Insights. Uh, they had a big press conference a few days ago to announce 
that they just received $2.4 million over the next four years for the credible messenger uh, organization that they have there in Jersey City. So they'll be working with the youth and uh, juvenile justice facility uh, to help these kids out there. And they managed to to secure $2.4 million to get it done. So congratulations to Dennis Siva. With that kind of money, you can make a huge impact. And you've already done it, but I know you're going to do much, much more. Right. So that's pretty cool. Um, Then also, uh, we got the Spirit of Mandela released a video, uh, Spirit of Mandela Tribunal 2021. For those that don't know, the Spirit of Mandela is an organization forming a tribunal, international organization that will be indicting the United States on charges of slavery and genocide. So that's happening. (laughs) And they just released a a video. You might want to check that out. Um, also remember the abolition amendment is in play. We've got a federal amendment on the table right now, and we're building up support amongst senators to vote for this uh, federal amendment. And if you want to support us in that, all you got to do is text 52886, 52886, and uh, put in the exception as one word. Or you can go to com. And when you fill out that little bit of information, it immediately sends a letter of support uh, to your local co- uh, uh, elected officials as well as your federal elected officials. So that's pretty damn awesome. All right, I'm going to keep it moving. Got a few more to go. Uh, you said feel free if you want to help me out. Um, do, do, you, do your thing, brother, because as you're speaking, I'm driving. I'm trying to get back home, you know, so, you know, just keep going. Keep going. Jail you on a roll, you. brother. Jailhouse Lawyers Speak is our sponsor. They named this program. They're the ones that asked us to do this program. And they're having uh, Shut Them Down 2021, as you know. And they're looking for people to organize in their communities, Shut Them Down events. Uh, So you can find that information at Abolition Today on our Facebook page. If you want to participate in Shut Them Down 2021 uh, for Black August, be sure to reach out to the organizations that they provide for you. And the website's there. So that is happening, and you can be a part of it right now. Um, also, a few days ago, uh, man, it was kind of like a, a reunion. I was interviewed by Tag Harmon and Scotty Reed on New Abolitionist Radio, <laughs> all right? New Abolitionist <laughs> right. Radio, that was pretty cool. It, it wasn't really a long interview. We didn't get to get into too much stuff, but it was pretty nice, and we broke down some of the uh, positions that we're in right now. And how we got there. So it was nice to, to see that New Abolitionist Radio is coming back uh, as a uh, asset in this fight. Shout out to Scotty and Tag. Tag will be calling in in the second hour, as a matter of fact, to talk a little bit about upcoming events that include some of our uh, friends. Sister Tamika Staley is going to participate in one of their events, as a matter of fact. Um, keeping it moving... <laughs> Swift Justice sent me a bill to read, but the bill is so small writing that I, I can't really read it. So, Swift, if you're listening, man, uh, you're going to have to give me a call at some point and holler at me about that. Uh, Swift is an abolitionist and activist that's working from inside the Alabama prison system, uh, like Brother Benu and Kinetic as well. Um, okay, keeping it moving. Uh, my man, <laughs> Alonzo... <laughs> hit me up a couple of days ago and said that they had a huge fire out there in um, Angola prison and hundreds of inmates were evacuated. So 
I'm looking at a picture of it right now. Smoke is rising way, way up in the sky. You can see the fires uh, just blazing there. It said that the uh, fire department took like 40 minutes uh, to get it under control after they had got there, and uh, they lost at least one dorm during that. Uh, matter of fact, let me read a little bit about what he told me. This is directly from somebody inside. Uh, he said, bro, here's the plan. The administration is misreporting the actual fire. You have one fire that happened at Camp C, which was in protest of the 10 and 2. On an average, they've been having the, at, uh, at least around a fire every other week or so. And uh, all of them are ends up in extended lockdowns. For the last few months, at least once a month, the administration is misreporting these incidents to downplay the uprising that's one of the brothers that started the fires right next door to me. So we will plan on do so what we will plan on doing is letting him do an exclusive interview. We submit his write up where all of these fires are taking place to the marshal, fire marshal, where they can show the contradiction. Also, excessive force is being used through chemical agents all day. We're forced to smell mace despite the pandemic. I'm set to go to camp next week. So we get the interview now, release it in the following weeks. Uh, and he says he's safe. He's still in the dungeon, however, uh, after the two fires and Camp D. And he says that, that they claim an electric, electrical malfunction was the one that caused it in Camp C. But uh, he's also saying that the reasoning is they set those fires on purpose in protest of the Jim Crow laws that has over 1,500 people still locked in cages who were railroaded through 10 and 2 all-white juries. All right, man. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's you know I'm glad the, I'm I'm glad the brother is keeping us up to date. I told him I said any little thing that happens down there, let us know so we can get the word out because it's very important that people know what's going on. And this is why we're always pushing: get involved, get involved, get involved, because there's so much going on behind these prison walls, on these slave plantations, and. The media is not going to cover it. This is true. All right, I got one more to give you, and this one is a little old, but we've been holding it in the cut because we didn't really want to talk about it just yet while our legal team mm-hmm. worked on the ideas. So this happened back in June 14th. I received this email uh, from the attorneys in Colorado representing the inmates there who were suing for slave labor. They get paid 10 cents an hour. It's a state that has uh, decided they wanted to end slavery without exception and did so, the very first state to do so. And, uh, of course, the prisoners sued to test the waters now, and the results are in. So I want to read you the email that I received. Hi, Tanya, Max, Sarah, and Kamal. The court dismissed the complaint based on federal case law. I have attached both the DOC and course civic orders basically the same. I intend to appeal unless the plaintiffs say no. We have until July 30 to file the notice of appeal. The U.S. Constitution still has slavery in the 13th Amendment, so I don't think the federal case law supports the judge's opinion. We had a former public defender as a judge, and former public defenders make some of the worst judges. And public defenders mm-hmm. become judges generally did a bad job defending their clients. Underlining mm-hmm. the court's order, I think he reasoned, I am a judge, and the And only the best and most just people become judges. Good. And just people don't support slavery. Therefore, slavery doesn't exist in prisons. 
Uh, he thanks us for our works and says he wants to speak to us about the next steps and reminds us that amendment T failed, uh, but nobody gave up, and then amendment A passed. Uh, I think what, what he didn't put in here, which we talked about later on, is that it was dismissed because the judge cited the 13th Amendment saying that since this is a federal amendment and it says that slavery is legal, you can't sue on this basis, even though your state has abolished slavery. And for us, that's actually a win because now we have a Supreme Court case. So we're going to move Absolutely. this argument from that court to the Supreme Court. And this brings in the this brings in the Tenth Amendment argument that the federal government can't have a law that uh, supersedes a state's authority. And so, if the state says slavery is abolished in our state, then the federal court can't turn around and say, "No, no, 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 no. We want you to have slavery in your state." So exactly, yes, I, it I, comes down to state rights now. Exactly. The real state rights. <laughs> the, the real state rights, you know? So, you know, who knows? The Civil War pop off, they'd be like, it was all about states' rights. But states' rights to do what? Keep slavery, right. just like before. It's amazing how history is repeating itself. In, yeah, and now you way. have a state that wants to be free, and the federal government is going to tell them, no, you got to be a slave state. you got to be a slave state. Man. Well, uh, I think... It, with all of that being said, unless you, unless you have any commentary on it, uh, it's probably time to get into our main theme. I'm I'm excited to hear it. You know, uh, <laughs> these clips are tremendous. Yeah, tremendous. So I encourage everyone take out your notes, take out your notepads because you're getting ready to get a lot of information. A lot of it, many of us have never heard before. Exactly. And, you know, um, we are coming up on the anniversary of the end of the Triangle Slave Trade, uh, which was enacted by British Parliament, of course, and then went into play on, in 1834, August 28th. Uh, I think it was 1833, August 28th. But in any case, um, they allegedly ended slavery, and they all think that it was such a beautiful thing that they did, and they're proud of this. But what they don't tell you about is the real reasons that they did it. And it wasn't because they were altruistic. I'm going to uh, allow uh, the expert to tell you all about it. Um, we have a clip from the slavery debate, why C.L.R. James and Eric Williams were right. And so the author uh, speaks about these two authors <laughs> who wrote some powerful books and explains uh, the circumstances surrounding that event and why these two men had a very clear picture of it. Um, the first one he doesn't talk about too much. He just kind of opens up the door. Uh, the second one he goes into too much, into a lot of detail. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into it. Remember, like Yusuf said, you're about to get educated. So if you got a pencil and a notebook or something, make sure that you're ready to talk, take some notes. So here we are. Part one, author James Hartfield, Critical Understanding of the History of Slavery Abolition. And that's going to be followed by Where Evil Grows by the Poppy Family. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Abolition. I really want just to talk about the history and in particular the way 
that C.L.R. James and also Eric Williams contributed to the whole history and understanding of slavery. These two men, both from Trinidad, were friends. And I have to say at this point, they fell out big time. You know, like you've fallen out with people before, but I don't think, you know, when your girlfriend let you down, you ever made a revolution against her uh, and tried to overthrow the government that she was the leader of. That's how bad it was between C.L.R. James and uh, Eric Williams. But that's another story. What I want to talk about is these two men and what they did, which is remarkable and has changed everybody's understanding of the question of slavery in a cool way, not in an emotional or an artistic way, in a, a, a way of measuring and understanding the real history of uh, slavery, of, in particular of the Atlantic slave trade uh, and its importance. These two men, they began to look at the history of slavery in a way that was critical, that didn't accept the received opinion, because they'd both grown up in classrooms with hard-working school teachers uh, with a picture of William Wilberforce hanging on the classroom wall to show that uh, the people of Trinidad, like all the people of the West Indies, should be grateful to the men who were, uh, without irony, called the saints. That's to say, the abolitionists of England, the people who had moved the argument to abolish slavery uh, in the uh, British Parliament uh, and in the colonies and had set them free. And both James and Williams I think, would have looked upon that picture at first with real feeling and sentiment and then later with a degree of anger and, and distrust at the story they were being told, that they had been set free. And this, I think, is the starting point, really, of the critical history of slavery, the attempt to understand slavery not as it is told, as a, a, a generous story of, of liberation and, and friendly, benevolent act, by the British Parliament. Anybody who's read uh, James's fabulous history, The Black Jacobins, will know that the core of this story is the people who freed themselves. And that is the real weight of James's intervention. The strength of, of what he writes is that it wasn't the case that uh, people were set free, they weren't released, they weren't uh, liberated by distant, benevolent philanthropists, they made themselves free. He chose that history because it's a history of a people who made their own freedom. Now then, Williams is altogether a difficult character in the discussion of slavery. Whereas James' uh, contribution in time were welcomed, Williams is a man of whom it has been said a hundred times in a hundred different books and articles, Eric Williams is wrong because... And uh, the reasons why Eric Williams is wrong are always different. They're always a different reason. He's wrong because uh, he's unsympathetic uh, to the philanthropists. He's wrong because he's too much of a left-winger. He's too much of a Marxist. And the reason he's wrong is the things that he said were shocking. They were truly shocking to the audience that heard them. The first thing he said is that the origins of all the capitalist wealth of London, of Britain, uh, were to be found in the slave trade. So what you might say, I can assure you that in 1944, when he p 
published his book, Capitalism and Slavery, Eric Williams' proposition that uh, the foundation of the wealth of the most uh, benevolent, uh, liberating uh, nation in the world, Great Britain, were in the slave trade, were truly shocking. Truly shocking. Know that song, man. You know, uh, when it comes to this movement, 
music is eternal. <laughs> you know, if it works, it works. And that was a powerful piece, particularly as a follow-up to what we just heard. Uh, the beginning Absolutely. of capitalism in uh, Britain as well as in America. Right. Showing where evil grows. And we just heard roots of it. That's roots right. of it. And, you know, mentioning about Eric Williams and mentioning about CLR James's book, uh, The Black Jacobins, you know, this very instrumental work during that period. And it's still to this day, they still haven't gotten the recognition that they deserve because he showed Great Britain, of course, you know, they're going to say, oh, he's wrong, he's he's biased, or whatever they're going to say. They're not going to support it because of the truth that he was spitting, that, the you know, the bulk of what uh, of uh, Britain's wealth was coming from slavery. So quite naturally, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, he's right. Right. Throughout the series of clips you'll hear tonight, he's going to be talking about those two men and the ideas. But he spends most of his time um, talking about CLR James. I think this is the only part you actually hear about Williams. And Williams was the one he said everybody was like, okay, Williams, brilliant, acceptable. We all love it. And what did they love? That he said in his book, Capitalism and Slavery, that black people freed themselves, much like we're doing right now. <laughs> you know, we did a lot of the work to free ourselves. The very first abolitionist was the first enslaved African. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it hasn't always Cut been this all-white movement, which is uh, what it's been, we can hear you, <laughs> which has been uh, the narrative that... Sorry, give me... Give so, I like the idea... Give me one moment, uh, Max. Okay. I, I like the idea that um, the narrative is something that we have done for ourselves as a people. We are freeing ourselves. And then the other one, uh, which was CLR James, went into the economic uh, aspects of it, saying basically that uh, all the wealth throughout Britain, and by default, America too, uh, came from the slave trade. So uh, there's a couple of pieces of supporting information I also want to uh, share. But there, there's one thing I, I did want to get out there. Our, our uh, Team member Jeanette Smith is sharing as she can, so you'll probably get a chance to see this at Abolition Today on Facebook. But we found this clip via Java Neptune, which was filled, filmed in Trinidad and Tobago on Emancipation Day, August 1st, 2021. And, you know, they still celebrate Emancipation Day out there. Throughout the era, the era of slavery, drums have been an integral part of the survival of the African slaves. Drum rhythms were used as a code, communicating messages that the slave owners couldn't decode. Additionally, the rhythms would have been motivating them to pursue the hardship. The rhythms would have even motivated them to pursue the hardship of labor. Moreover, their unique worship incorporated various types of drums for many reasons that were much more than entertainment. As a result, the inclusion of the African drums in the Emancipation Celebration Day attests to its essential use and function during slavery in commemoration of their struggle. Emancipation Day is a national holiday in Trinidad and Tobago, and it was established August 1st, 1985, to commemorate the abolition of slavery there. So check that clip out. It's really, really powerful. So the root of everything we're talking about here is August 1st, right? Emancipation Day. And I want to read a little right. bit from what they say in the Zen Project about this day. 
It says that August 1st day was once the most important date on the calendar for African Americans during the 19th century. It represented a day more meaningful than the 4th of July. It is also widely celebrated across the nation with picnics, speeches, dancing, hymns, and marches until the beginning of the Civil War. The holiday marked the radical deed of a foreign country, Britain's passage of the Slavery Abolition Act, which marks the start of freedom for 800,000 enslaved people in all its colonies on August 1st, 1834. Yeah, 1834. The holiday had its roots in Jamaica, where a five-week revolt led by a black preacher named Sam Sharp in 1831 and 1832 had forced the British Parliament to make a calculated decision that maintaining over slavery overseas was simply too expensive. Let us pray that our brothers and sisters in other lands may be made free, said the once enslaved William Gibson in Falmouth, Jamaica, on August 1st, 1838. So that's what they had to say there in the Zen Project in regards to today's date. And, you know, they gained a victory in 1807 with the bill of the abolition of the slave trade being passed. However, that bill trade in slaves, but it didn't abolish slavery itself. Slavery itself. to domestic slave trades, especially in the United States. Remember, this is like an extension now of King Cotton when it comes to the economics of what was happening at that time. Uh, When we went into the Civil War, just prior to that, here in South Carolina, 80, or actually throughout the whole country, 80%, the whole South, 80% of their uh, GDP was tied up in the slave trade. So we all know what it was they was fighting about. All right, Yusuf, you're back, you said. You want to comment on any of this? Well, yes. I mean, I was going to say that even, you know, my own family, you know, uh, from my father's side, you know, the base being in central Virginia and, you know, that that's a, that's a common practice to have that what we, what they call first Sunday, you know, or but it's it's like a really big deal, you know, from August 1st until, you know, just a, you know, the first few days. So, you know, I've heard some of this coming from them, you know, because, right. of course, my family, you know, we have so many different types of roots from Gullah Geechee to all of the different uh, native tribes in that region going and tying into the Tainos, you know, so we're all over the place. And so I've heard all kinds of stories like this uh, when I went down for my family reunion. So just to show that, yeah, this is something that's still going on and many people know the roots of it, that it ties back to this. Well, we about to drop. In fact, they even had a movie called First Sunday. First Sunday, that's right. There was a movie called First Sunday. Uh, we in the in uh, United States, we don't have any days that recognizes the alleged end of slavery. We haven't celebrated any of that, uh, at least not on a federal level, until Juneteenth was made legal on the same exact day that we announced the abolition amendment. Abolition <laughs> right? amendment. Isn't that right. just coincidental? You know, to think, wow. You could have did that any time, but the day we announced the abolition amendment, that's when you got to counter and say, nah, y'all, slavery is over. Here, celebrate it. Go ahead, take a day off. <laughs> right. Amazing. But, you know, things are never as they seem. There's always a story behind it. And we're going to continue with this story. You've been introduced to the two men. Now let's hear a little bit more about uh, what it is that we're talking about 
and why. You're listening to Abolition Today with Yusuf Hassan and Max Parthas. If you want to chime in after this clip, you can call us at 515-605-9814, 515-605-9814. Please remember to press 1 on your keypad so that we know you have a question or a comment. In the meantime, we're going to listen to part two. We'll be right back after author James Hartfield, critical understanding of the history of slavery abolition, followed by Prince, running game, son of a slave master. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Both James and Williams had read in Karl Marx's book about capitalism a particular chapter that attracted them. It's quite near the end, uh, and it's called primitive accumulation, which is a fancy term for a particular economic problem that was raised at the time uh, when people were talking about how do markets work. And the problem was, where does the money come from in the first place? You know, what's the, what's the investment fund that allows a business to begin? And the people that worried about these things, they said, oh, well, you know, there must have been some guy who was like really... Uh, abstemious and saved up his money, unlike all those idiots who were spending their wages uh, and wasting themselves, he was saving up so that he could start a little business, which is a nice story. Marx, who you understand, wasn't particularly sympathetic to that view, said, I don't think history was like that at all. He said, look, look at what really happened. He said, where did the money come from? Theft and thieving and piracy. He said, where does the wealth come from that begins the uh, industrial age? It comes from people like John Hawkins and Walter Raleigh stealing ships that were crossing the Atlantic laden with gold from the New World. That's where the investment fund comes from. And in a small passage in that particular chapter, and, and he says, and from stealing people, from slavery. Marx didn't make that much of it. It wasn't really his issue. But uh, James and Williams, they were really interested and began to look and ask the question, where did the money come from that was the foundation of the British Empire? Williams' book, Capitalism and Slavery, has not been surpassed for his explanation of where the money comes from. The money comes from the triangular trade, the trade whose real foundation is stealing people from Africa and selling them in the West Indies, and with the money that you make there, uh, bringing back sugar that's made in the West Indies back to England to sell it, maybe to sell it on in Europe. The triangular trade. What Williams shows in such perfect detail is that all of the wealth of Britain stems from that original uh, act. He's, he doesn't dismiss the importance of industrialization. He doesn't say that um, the industrial worker in Britain wasn't also later the foundation of the wealth. He says, where did the money come from? In the first place, he says, it comes from slavery, and slavery is at the core. Well, I can tell you, when that was published, some people were very, very unhappy about what he'd said. He said another thing that really irritated quite a few people, and he said this, which is kind of thinking about that portrait of William Wilberforce. He said, when the abolition came, Maybe there were moral feelings, you know, maybe it was sentiment, maybe it was philanthropic feeling that made the British Parliament change its laws on slavery. But was it not also the case that they changed their laws because they worked out that the plantation system in the West Indies was so bankrupt, 
having produced so much wealth, was now indebted, ruined, uh, that they'd sucked dry the West Indies and bled dry the people that were uh, creating all that wealth, that they shed that wealth uh, readily and took the money back to London to start their industries. And then he said this thing, which was so offensive to everybody, was that, in truth, it was a good business plan. He said, maybe there was morality involved, but let's face it, it was a great business plan to take the money from the West Indies and invest it in British industry. And they knew the mercantile era, the West Indy interest, had had its day. The planters had enjoyed their wealth in the 18th century, but in the 19th century, the truth was, they were really not the future for British capitalism. The future belonged to industry and the West Indies were left and abandoned. And that was really shocking, as you can imagine, because not only had he said that uh, the foundations of British success and industry were in slavery, but he also said that far from being a moral act, the liberation, the abolition of slavery, was a simple business deal. So, for those two reasons, Eric Williams had to be wrong. And uh, so the scribes started their work. Because what he was saying was too shocking, too shocking, too shocking.
Abolition. Abolition. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parkes and Yusuf Hassan. You just finished listening to author James Hartfield's Critical Understanding of the History of, Abol- of Slavery Abolition. That was part two, followed by Prince, Running Game, Son of a Slave Master. There's a lot Still going on there, Max. Game. Still, Still running, running game. game. <laughs> yep. Son of a slave master. Still running game. Ain't that what Mitch McConnell was saying? Well, you know, I got it in common with Barack Obama. We're both uh, descendants of slave owners. <laughs> Still running that damn game. And the same hustle they used then is the hustle they use now. We just so much to unpack. But shout out to Prince. His new album, which came out posthumously, uh, is very much centered on social justice issues, uh, and I'm really glad to hear that. Looking forward to getting that whole album. Um, man, do you want to start out on that clip, or you want to uh, pass it to me? I'll pass it to you. All right. Uh, first things, let me get a few things out of the way. You know, I'm so hesitant with Marxism, and this is one of the reasons why I'm hesitant with Marxism. Uh, I can't get tied up in another white man's ideologies because they had no they, they didn't care about what we were going through. As the man expressed there, you know, it wasn't his thing. Slavery wasn't his right. thing. And they had just had this one little mention of it. Oh, and he got it by stealing people. You know, you're robbing everybody, but you also steal so people. And that was pretty much the end of it. So that's, that's one thing, right? Capitalism in America and in uh, Britain, the primitive accumulation <laughs> primitive accumulation the caveman style huh right uh, and like we talked about in king cotton you see the connections from 1789 and the cotton gin and then moving upwards uh to the mercantile era which they claim mm-hmm. ended at that point and then that gave birth to the industrial revolution and people were making money hand over fist so many uh people who are established now can trace their wealth all the way back to them. And the people that didn't get paid for it was, guess who? <laughs> the slaves. Because remember, exactly. the name of the act was actually the, uh, had that included in it, that it would be paying former slave owners. That was part of the process, right? But the people who were actually right. enslaved were abandoned. So this thing was a business deal. It was a business plan for a failing industry while uh, what does he say? Industry, industry was taking over. The Industrial Revolution was taking over. And so, you know, things like cotton and sugar and all of these were going by the wayside as other industries took over. Um, and they abandoned them. They just weren't making any money anymore. So, you know, they took a bow like they were very altruistic. <laughs> but the idea was they were actually saving, making more money that way. So by abandoning it, they left the debt behind because a lot of those people on those plantations were reaching out to Parliament saying, hey, we need money, we need money, we're broke, we ain't got no money, we need money. And, and so right. they took that by dumping those uh, things, they were able to keep more and it took the wealth and started the Industrial Revolution on the backs of slaves. And that's what pissed Absolutely. everybody off. My man always talked about how somebody was shocked. <laughs> I heard him say shocked so many times that I wanted to pull mm-hmm. out Gil Scott Haran on him. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? America leads the world to be in shock. Well, this is Britain, but same thing. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah, so that was pretty much the brunt of everything that I wanted to say. And just going on, you know, 
the the portion of the act that you were speaking on, the part that says, and for compensating the persons hitherto entitled to the services of such slaves. Right, you know, we know what them. happened with Haiti, you know, where it wasn't until just a few years ago, you know, less than 50 years ago, where Haiti finally was absolved of that debt. But we know they're still paying to this day, you know, in other forms. We know with the earthquake just hitting uh, Friday or Saturday, and we know, you know, we've seen all the memes circulating on, on social media about the about the Clinton Foundation and others. You know, people make jokes about it, but it is real. You know, every time something happens at Haiti, there are those that are going to go there and exploit the situation. Thousands upon thousands of children are going to turn up missing and end up in uh, some sort of human trafficking. So we know that it's still going on to this day. Very and much so. There's, there's something that I was discussing with someone yesterday. In fact, the person really presented it to me based on some things that have been going on where there's a new trend that's going on, and I believe you and I are going to have to discuss this in a future episode, Max, probably after we uh, come from Sacramento, where there's this new thing called medical kidnapping. It's a new form of human trafficking going on that they're using this constitutionally vague term, neglect, to take people's children from them. And you see the families, the same thing that's going on is the same thing that went on in the plantation where you have the parents just standing there helpless and all they can do is cry about their children being snatched from their arms. Sorry, I had to go on that right, but it's just like weighing heavily on me right now. That's part of the process of genocide. Remember when we did the program, What's Genocide? And that was included. Right. Uh, where right. children we, being we forced to be away. And it's it's right. something that's really picking up steam. There's no talk about it right now because unless it comes to a person's door, many people are oblivious to it. But they're uh, usually they are running around medically kidnapping children nowadays, and it's it's very relevant because we know where we we're, we're currently you know in the pandemic. There's all of these mandatory vaccinations and maskings popping up, and we're going to see more of it. We're going to see it in large numbers. So I just wanted to put that out there, you know, because it definitely ties in, you know, when we're talking about the slave trade, that there's another slave trade going on right now, but they're using the color of law to disguise it. You know, one of the things that I really try to push out there is that slavery is not limited to prison labor. And even with right. colleagues, it's hard to get them to understand the problem with portraying it only as prison labor. Um, you are diminishing all of the crimes against humanity that are happening uh, while only focusing on a portion of what's occurring. Uh, this right. new this new slavery that we have today in the 21st century includes warehousing bodies, and it has expanded uh, to the uh, not only the criminal justice system, but also the immigration system. Remember, they just voted to be able to keep immigrants for <clears throat> indefinitely. And we know that some of these tents where they were keeping children were being charged over $750 a day per child. We're talking about a right. fortune being spent on this. You know, this job creation program through slavery. So it's expanded there. And it also includes 
adoption agencies where they have prisons and jails that have contracts with adoption agencies that allow uh, people looking for children to put two, three, four, or five thousand dollars in somebody's commissary and literally buy their children right out of the prison. And also, there's the issue of wardship, where you're a, a ward of the state. Again, you become property. You know, I remember right. when we did the show, What is Slavery? To find the most adequate, sufficient definition that is accepted across the world, the key of that uh, Bellagio Harvard guidelines was that they must show uh, ownership or uh, exercise all the rights involved in ownership. So if they're treating you like a property, if you are literally and legally listed as property, that is the key element for the Bellagio Harvard guidelines on recognizing slavery. And that's all the slave trade. When we talk about the triangle slave trade, you know, just as you just mentioned, it just doesn't – when we talk about slavery, you and I are never just talking about prisons. Correct. You know, it goes well beyond the prisons. The prisons is – you know, when we exactly. talk about uh, Robert Mancini's book, Slavery by Another Name, and mm-hmm. they just kept evolving it into other things. We can run down a whole litany of things where slavery exists, and it's only certain things that really get the national attention. You know, most like, people have been reactionary to certain incidents, but there's no real involvement in the movement. We're starting to get pick up in the in the area of prison slavery, but the other areas, like you just mentioned, you know, you know, all the things that people had a problem with going on in immigration under Trump, no one batted an eye when it went on under Obama or when it went on under Bush or when it went under other, the other Bush or the, you know, under Reagan. No one was saying anything when these things were happening. It's only when it's almost as if no one's outraged until someone tells them to be outraged through the media. Then that's when the outrage comes. This and so, is so you and complex. I here. Right. And, you know, people like you and I are putting out the information, and that's why we go to the areas where the conversation isn't being had. You know, no one's really talking about it in this manner, and that's why we do what we do, because we, our job is to get that information out there, and other movements out there pick up on it, and they take it to another level. So... In a way, we're keeping uh, it simple as slavery and genocide, but also it's very complex because, as we said, this slavery and genocide touches all aspects of our social, uh, and professional, economic uh, lives right. here in the United right. States and abroad. It touches all aspects of it. So even the for-profit bounties, uh, bounty hunters like Dog the Bounty Hunter, that's a part of the system right. of slavery, and it's illegal part everywhere else in the world. For you to do that, you know, there's only two countries on earth that do that. That's us in the Philippines. <laughs> you know, right. everybody else is like, no, we can't do that. It's illegal hunting humans for profit. Uh, so you have that. Yeah. You also have the for-profit probation companies where you're out now, and then they're holding your life in their hands based on whether or not you pay them. <laughs> you know, right? Uh, remember in Alabama, they shut down the whole industry. 110 cities had to. Uh, leave their offices uh, where they had these for-profit probation companies going on. 
Right. Uh, so it, it crosses so many boundaries. It's far more than just prison labor. And by focusing solely on prison labor, we are basically saying the rest of that is okay. And it's not okay. And it's not right. You, and you know, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and they make such entertainment out of it. I mean, you recall when Cops was just as a huge hit show, you know, so much so that guys in jail were watching Cops. You know, Cops and uh, Orange is the New Black and all mm-hmm. of the versions of Locked Up, Locked Up Abroad, Locked Up This, Locked Up That. They have whole series about it. And so that's why when you say slavery, people don't really get it because, one, they've been lied to. They've always been told that, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation ended slavery, the 13th Amendment ended slavery, and blah, 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 blah from there. And that's why you and I stick to the human trafficking aspect, not just the human trafficking warehousing bodies, but – the human rights violations. Crimes against because humanity. That way, yeah. yeah, the crimes against humanity because then that extends beyond it. You can you can tune into any social media platform and you're gonna see a gang of police officers with their foot on someone's neck. Or you're gonna see, you know, someone being gunned down, some snuff film, or you're gonna see someone's children being ripped from their arms. All aspects. You're going to see injustices in the courtroom. I remember reading an article just last week where, you know, on on two separate days, a black woman and a white woman went before a judge and similar charges. In fact, the white woman's charge was more severe. She got probation. The black woman got prison time. And it was for embezzling money. One was the county clerk. That was the white woman. The black woman was... uh, uh, I think the a school, some, something with the school financial district or something. But the the black woman, it was about 30000 The white woman, it was several hundred thousands that she had embezzled. She got probation. It was the same prosecutor on the case. See? Not the same judge, but the same prosecutor. And, and what's the problem the with U.S. prosecutors, Yusuf? You already know. But tell, tell the people, what's the problem we have with U.S. prosecutors here in the United States? It's always going to problem when you have 95% of them being white. That's uh, it right there. <laughs> yeah, right. we can stop right there. <laughs> yeah, you can stop right there. 95% of all prosecutors are white, period. You don't think that's open for racial bias? Like, don't be naive, <laughs> you know? It's right. nowhere where all white people get together basically and good shit comes out of it for, for other people. Right. <laughs> So and then we heard that. earlier, we heard earlier where when they talk about judges, you know, and you say, yeah, and, and that's that's really like the saying, you know, most most judges are former prosecutors. When you find defense attorneys that are judges, <laughs> it kind of really means that they weren't good uh, attorneys. When you find defense attorneys that are judges, because that means that. They stood in front of the courts, and they did what was best for the court, not what was best for their client. They're being rewarded for it. Prosecutors are going to do what prosecutors are supposed to do. Their job is to, you know, get convictions, get fines, 
get all of the money they can. And here, but, I thought their job was to make sure that the Constitution was uh, he, adhered to. <laughs> yeah, that's what they tell judges. I mean, that's what they tell juries. They'll stand in front of a jury and they'll say, you know, I'm not here trying to get a guilty verdict. I'm trying to make sure that justice is, is served. You know, but hmm. of course, their form of justice is always meaning find the defendant guilty. Well, Let's go ahead. And, and one thing that I always, just, just this to. last little sentence to that, Max, I was just going to uh, say, whenever I was in front of a jury, I always said, you know, a guilty verdict isn't the only form of justice. You know, an acquittal is also a form of justice. And most of the times we hear people, people hear, you know, justice being served, it only means a guilty verdict. Now, I'm sorry for cutting you off, but I just... Oh, no problem. I, I would just put this back on time. As a, uh, so sure. kind of, we want to do this this last one now. Uh, it's part three of the slavery debate, YCLR. James and Eric Williams were right, and it's author James Hartfield. So this is part three of Critical Understanding of the History of Slavery Abolition, and it's going to be followed by Snoop Dogg, So Misinformed, featuring Slick Rick. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. The Abolition. people that the most important to are a man called Roger Anstey. Roger Anstey was an English historian, uh, and he said, no, no, it can't be true because I've looked at the figures. I've looked at the numbers, and actually the profits of the um, uh, West India uh, plantations were quite small and played no great part in the fund of, of industrialization and capitalism in the West. And uh, people said, yes, yes. Anstey's shown that um, William's rather romantic view, uh, uh, which is obviously politically inspired, uh, can't be true. And uh, Anstey was uh, very popular with another academic, an American called Seymour Drescher, who's still alive. And Seymour Drescher said, yes, yes, it can't be true because... Uh, in any event, I know full well that um, uh, the West Indies were booming and uh, slavery wasn't unprofitable at all. And look, look, in Cuba they made a fortune from um, uh, slavery long, long after it was abolished. So it can't have been for economic reasons. Now then, I can't go through all of the detail about how the argument played out. But I can say this, those two uh, views... Anstey's and Dresch's, which for so long were accepted as good coin, mostly are rejected today. Less so in the United States, more so in Britain. And they're rejected for a simple reason, and that is because at the University College London, a scholar, Catherine Hall, uh, widow of uh, the late Stuart Hall, has been involved for some years now uh, with Nick Draper and, and many other researchers in tracing the actual sources of cash from the West Indies and slowly they've been putting it online and the truth is that we now know that it's unavoidably the case that most of the early investment funds or substantial proportion of the early investment funds did indeed come from slavery that Barclays Bank though the Barclays brothers were very much anti-slavery Quakers all their money came from uh, trading with uh, slave traders slave merchants in Liverpool and other uh, cities, that that was the foundation of their wealth, as it was the foundation of the wealth of London, as it was the foundation of the wealth of Bristol and Liverpool and Glasgow 
uh, and all these Georgian cities built upon the slave trade. In some senses, the reason that we're sensitive to this is partly because the mood has changed. Emotionally, the mood has changed. So if you go now to Bristol or Glasgow or Liverpool, you'll find a big part of their local museum is given over to the slave trade. And you'll find that the good citizens of Bristol promote their cities out of guilt. They say, look, look, these terrible things we did. Come, come to our museum and we'll tell you how guilty we are about what we did in the past. That's a different kind of emotional response. You might, if you were really cynical, you might say that that's how capitalism works. You know, they exploit you once and then they tell you a book about what a terrible time you had uh, when you were being exploited. But I wouldn't want to say that. It would be a terrible thing to say. Similarly, uh, Seymour Drescher, I can't go into all the detail. Why was he wrong? I think he was wrong mostly because he only looked at the mass of cash. He looked at the uh, amount of money the Cubans made uh, when they were selling sugar subsequently. But what he didn't look at was the uh, demoralisation and bankruptcy of the estates and plantations in the West Indies. He didn't look at what was happening in the West Indies, uh, that all of those plantations were massively indebted, hundreds of them every year were bankrupted, uh, that they were changing hands all the time for the simple reason that they weren't making the kind of money that they were uh, previously. And when the um, uh, West India interest, as it was called, the lobbyists for the planters, would come to Parliament, parliamentarians would complain about the whining cant of the West Indian planters, always asking us for grants and money to subsidise them which was the beginning of a very interesting story. Now then, the debate was had out, and for a long time it was suffered that uh, anybody who thought that Eric Williams was right or C.L.R. James was right was just a crank, some over-radical, uh, nationalistic, third-worlder who had no um, real say. But over time, we've come to understand that they were right after all, and the people who were cranks, and apologists and liars were the ones who tried to say that what they said wasn't true. I would like to say that this gentleman and all other people who are not blessed with melanin at this point in time to understand that what has happened in our history is that you have been misinformed as much as we have been misinformed. Much of the information that is brought forth not only from Dr. Muhammad, but other areas, other scholars are not available to you, as his sister said, in your curriculums that you have for 400 years when you did not allow us to read and write and was being hidden. Whether you, sir, personally did that or not, it was a legacy that was passed on to you. And I end by saying the Holocaust is simply the greatest atrocity on film. Ours was not film. No apology, equality. Youth is future, let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting pot help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. No post no backing up, tracking up. Good over evil, deceitful. Moral principle is simple. What 
will it take to get my peoples to connect together? You know it's black excellence to be compete together. Picture a photograph of black folks live together. In high definition, in high I would never turn my back on the block. I got the black on my back like James Brown. Boy, I'm proud to be black to all my sisters. Mother Earth is birthed us, nurtures, it hurts us first, misheard To all my sisters, ain't no knocking you back. Politicians politicking with the gown and the cap. The house got flavor and I like it like that. Black girl power, yeah, I'm rocking with that. Those is getting kicked down, statues is getting ripped down. Presidents meeting overseas just to have a sit down. They trying to keep us from running up. I never tell you to get down, it's all about coming up. No apology, equality, youth is future, let's move forward, healthy mentality helps sanity, melting pot help us up close enough, facts had backwards and inaccurate, tell folks no backing up, track it up, good over evil, deceitful, moral principles, the simple son, son, what are you saying? The foundation was laid, y'all nation was made off our ancestors back, back, back in the day. 400 years ago, y'all made us slaves, and you can hear it in the spirit coming deep from the grave. Life is a maze. Smoke so much dope, you want to day. But you ain't tripping, you getting paid. But who do you praise? But anyway, I read a history book, but I ain't learned nothing, dog. So I read the Bible, then the Holy Quran. Went to Jamaica to acquire my knowledge. That was the roster till my game got polished. The gang bang extreme with mileage. Trees and degrees like a train for college. Yeah, they try to keep us from running up. I never tell you to get down. It's all about coming up. No apology, equality. Youth is future, let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting pot help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. Tell folks no backing up, tracking up. Good over evil, deceitful. Moral principles, the simple fuck. No apology, equality. Youth is future, let's move forward. Healthy mentality helps sanity. Melting pot help us up close enough. Facts had backwards and inaccurate. Tell folks no backing up, tracking up. That was part three of Arthur James Hartfield's critical understanding of the history of slavery, abolition, and that was followed by Snoop Dogg, so misinformed, featuring Slick Rick. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. Max. He uh, really drove it home there in part three. For sure, man. Uh, he let it know everybody know what it was all about. Uh, you know, this wasn't some altruistic thing that was going on. It was controlled demolition. And then they made themselves look good doing it, just like they did by making Juneteenth a holiday. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, in this case, the people of the uh, West Indies did get a, uh, well, to the best of my knowledge, they got a lot more freedom than much of the other worlds who went through abolition uh, got because uh, it took them another 30 years for it to reach us here. And even then, it was all trickery and cunning where instead of just ending slavery, they reinvented it right there <laughs> through their criminal right. justice system. You know, and uh, we even see them still 
uh, keeping to that. They've, they've created such a model that and perfected it now that it's become a global phenomenon. When Haiti had their earthquake there, the first thing that mm-hmm. happened was the GEO group got a contract to go in there and build a prison in order to uh, help them with economic development. Building a prison was the way to do that through the GEO group. Then in Haiti, when right. they sued for reparations, the British Parliament and the voice of their prime minister came over and said, hey, we're not going to give you any reparations, but we will build a prison here, and that's an economic development program. We'll show you how to do it. <laughs> you know, Even in places like Nigeria, they didn't even have no damn prisons until the United States came over and colonized their asses in the 60s, and now they got over 200 prisons. <laughs> exactly. Exactly what I was going to say. It's one of the biggest exports that we have, you know, is building prison systems to uh, solidify an economy, solidify the economy. I don't want to misquote him, but I'm going to do my best. A speech from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in 1957, where he was saying that the white man doesn't do what he thinks is morally responsible. He does what he thinks is economically profitable. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, whatever underhanded deeds got to be done is going to get done uh, so that we can secure the wealth of our future. Thievery and robbery and rape and pillaging and all of these different things. And then after it's all done, hope a generation or two later that everybody will forget and you won't have to ever make amends for what you've already done. Absolutely. And I see uh, there's an article here, Building Prison, Building a Prison Economy in Rural America, put out by the prisonpolicy.org. And they say the acquisition of prisons as a conscious economic development strategy for depressed rural communities in small towns in the U.S. has become widespread. Hundreds of small rural towns in several whole regions have become dependent on an industry which itself is dependent on the continuation crime producing conditions and we 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 uh see many examples of this all over the place and I can just talk about you know my knowledge of the prison systems in New York you know many of the prisons you know in New York are upstate and the only economy in those areas is the prison sort of like Almost everyone in the town works at the prison. For any who saw the HBO special called, uh, uh, what was it, the one about the Danamora prison escape, you know, and you see how, you know, a lot of the prison's entire families work there. You know, you'll have maybe like the husband is a guard, the mother works in, you know, maybe like the sewing shop, and, you know, they have children working there as guards or some other civilian employment at the prison. So this goes on in the entire town. And then of course the prison is full. You know, the prison could be in upstate New York somewhere and it's full of people from Bed Stuy, East New York, Flatbush, you know. And then we go into the legislative aspect of it where all they have to do is just make more and more things crimes and that's gonna have that continuous flow. And that's why they say what they say at the end of it, the continuation of crime producing conditions. Right. There was, throughout that whole, uh, and we didn't hear the whole thing, actually. We only heard about 20, 25 minutes worth of what he spoke on during his lecture. Uh, the rest of it was followed by discussions of reparations, and I'm not trying to mix these two because 
Uh, if you don't know, the way I feel about reparations is I'm pro-reparations, but not before you end slavery. That would be extremely detrimental to us all if we accepted some kind of a deal and did not end slavery, because then it would ramp it up. Right. And there's no laws stopping them or protecting you or stopping them from having quadruple the prison population that they have now. Uh, and that would certainly happen. And they would blame us. Like, you, you got all that money and you acted a fool. Now we got to lock you up. Right. And we know from when we had Chris Canty on the uh, on the show, from when he, you know, wanted to go and live in Canada, and Canada had given up reparations, and he told us of all of the the things that happened, you know, that repara- reparations didn't solve anything. It actually made matters worse. Right. And, and that's, that's why we have to deal. end the condition first. Yeah, you gotta, you have to heal the wound first. And you Repair. know, I love, you, I love the people that are doing <clears throat> work and have been doing work, like in Cobra, for instance, uh, in the ADOs uh, organizations mm-hmm. towards reparations. But uh, I'm also very uh, nervous that they could actually beat us to it. Like you could settle the deal before we ended slavery. We're trying. We're going as right. fast as we can, y'all. You know, so maybe we can get that slavery done first, and then right after you're all set for reparations, because now the conversations are in your court now. You know what I mean? We've ended slavery. What's the next step? But don't do it before us. And if you do it, not even realizing slavery is still legal. That is, uh, that is a problem. That's not a solution. Right. That's a problem. All right, so they also talked about Barclays Bank, which is Quakers. And, you know, one of our sponsors here is Samer Urge, Quakers Uplifting mm-hmm. Racial Justice. And they were saying how Barclays Bank, which was Quakers out there in Britain, was actually uh, began and got their money from slavery, which I haven't heard about them trying to give any of that back. And um, he was saying that they promote their cities now out of guilt. It's like, you know, look what we did to these Negroes. We got stuff in the museum to show you how bad we was. And it was a quote he was saying, you know, that uh, capitalism uh, will exploit you once and then sell you a book about how they exploited you. So that's basically what they were doing there, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, we're so bad. Now, buy the books on how bad we are. Um, that was pretty pretty wild right there. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh Back in April, Barclays actually dropped its role as lead underwriter in the prison bond sale. They had been selling prison bonds. Mm. And so, yeah, they, 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 they're trying to clean up their image. You know, you have the Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn. It's home of the Brooklyn Nets now. So they're trying to clean up their image. But for years, that, that's what it's built on, writing uh, prison bonds. You know, they have been uh, really indoctrinating people with their curriculums in our education system. Uh, one of the stories that I read or heard from Undisputed, where they was talking about uh, expose done by The Guardian, they showed that thousands of textbooks are calling African slaves and, and Native American slaves uh, immigrants. <laughs> and uh, they're blaming Black Lives Matter in the history books for discord sown among the races. And so many other things that come directly from racist, white supremacist, right-wing narratives that's being taught to children in schools, in these particularly Christian private schools it's being taught, mm-hmm. and which is why in the coming months, starting in September, which is uh, 
serendipitous, I believe, we're going to begin building a new curriculum on slavery abolition, past and present. Um, we've got about a dozen uh, noted uh, academics from all fields who are going to be working on us with this so that we can tell the right story uh, rather than keep going with these lies and indoctrinations. And then the last thing I did want to bring out is that the next part of the discussion, because we did the King Cotton, now we've done the triangle trade. The next thing that happened was the domestic slave trade, because they stopped uh, capturing Africans and bring them back allegedly, but then they started breeding them here. And remember, we went from, I think it was 1880, they had like uh, 700,000 people in slave to 4 million by 1865. And this was after... Uh, the 1834 uh, abolition of the slave trade. Forty years later, we had four million people, and much of that came because of the cotton gin. So we really need to do a show about the domestic slave trade and the horrors involved in that. When you talk about breeding people like cattle, like dogs now, and that was done right here in states like where I'm at right now, South Carolina. As a matter of fact, absolutely got a clip about some of the horrors that they had to endure that will give you an idea of where we're going to come from when we do our show on the domestic slave trade. You know, slavery has so many names and it's going to have many, many more. You sound like you wanted to say something. I was just going to say that kind of ties right into our final clip that we have to play, not, not including the uh, bridging the gap, but the, the one involving uh, Kevin Snyder, the 15 outrageous facts about sex farms during slavery. Right. Right. So, you know, and since we're we're running short on time, and that's uh, I believe that clip is ten minutes long. Right. Um, yeah. Let's go ahead and get into that. I mean, it's going to be painful, but the truth hurts, and we're here to bring the pain. So, <laughs> let's go ahead and get into Kevin Snyder, fifteen outrageous facts about sex farms during slavery, and that's going to be followed by Kago Saul. Do you know your trauma? It's a poem uh, from uh, an artist out in Africa. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. And yes, this is what we're talking about. We'll be right back after this. Abolition Abolition. Abolition. Slavery is a deplorable notion. One person owning another is just not acceptable in today's world. But history bears out the ugly truth of rich, white plantation owners in Southern America owning black Americans and treating them with harsh physical punishments if they win against the owner's wishes. However, those television documentaries and references in history books seldom explore the very personal horrors faced by those who were enslaved some two centuries ago. Here are some instances where slaves were forced into extreme sexual behaviors and reproducing children to replenish the number of slaves solely for the benefit of their masters. Number one, slave women were subjected to many sexual improprieties. Among them were violations by their masters and their sons, forced matings, and arranged marriages. Number two, historian E. Franklin Frazier said stockmen were weighed and tested 
before being put into a room with young women to mate for the purpose of bearing children. Number three, by the end of the 18th century, the breeding of slaves was a common practice. Laws were changed so the public could view slaves as things instead of people, so the owner could do with them as he wished. Slave owners even began believing that slavery was grounded in the Bible. Number four, American slaves in 1860 were worth $4 billion, which was far more than the $228 million worth of gold and silver circulating back then. Even the value of Southern farmland, $1.92 billion, did not amount to the worth of the slaves. So for the owners, their slaves were worth everything to them. Number five, the mortality rate among slaves was very high. So their owners would often encourage or force them to have children. Even at the age of 13, females were expected to begin having children to replenish the slave stock. They were expected to have four or five children by the age of 20. They were often encouraged by their owners to do this with the promise of freedom. Number six, female slaves who did not cooperate with their owners to bear children for them would be subjected to many and various punishments, both mental and physical. Number seven, in some instances, the females who bore children for their owners were given gifts, including extra clothing, the withdrawal of any harsh treatment, and sometimes, if their quota was met, freedom. Number eight, women who did not or could not bear children would not be given any breaks or rewards that were given to mothers, and they would do the same work on the level of men. Number nine, if a woman was deemed infertile, she would sometimes be separated from her family, and owners would sometimes split up married couples and require them to choose new partners. Number 10, male slaves at the age of 15 were inspected to see if they could breed well. If it was deemed that they could not, their testicles would be castrated. Over the course of five years, each young male was expected to get at least 12 female slaves pregnant. According to the slave narratives, a male slave named Bert was said to have fathered over 200 children. Number 11, plantation owners would often take the pretty female slaves and put them to work in the household, but if the owner showed affections or gave favors to the pretty girl, his wife would subject her to torture. If the pretty slave bore a child, the owner's wife would behead that child. Number 12. To provide entertainment for his friends, the plantation owner would sometimes arrange orgies among the male and female slaves 
his friends would be allowed to join in them. Number 13. A slave wife could never be faithful to her husband, as most owners demanded she have affairs with other men, nor was she allowed to remain pure or virtuous. Number 14. Some male slaves were purchased by their owners solely by the size of their penis, and the black men were often raped by their gay slave owners. This process was called breaking the buck. And finally, number 15. Not all owners abandoned the children they fathered with female slaves. Some would provide them with education and money, and some owners even set free their mistresses and mixed-race children. Do you know your trauma? The same way you know your name, do you know that the blood of Hector Peterson nourishes the wombs that give birth to the fruit that hangs from trees like apples? Do you know your pain? The same way your ancestors were hung from trees, do you know your history? Do you know that bodies still hang like apples from trees? Do you know the misery? Do you know that we mourn unborn black bodies before we even get the chance to know them? Do you know that we mourn unborn black bodies before we even get the chance to name them? Do you know your name? The same way you know your pain. Do you even know your pain? Perhaps you know the pressure, for you are the dreams of an ancestor, but do you know your ancestors? Do you know their persistence? Maybe you know of their brilliance. In fact, you may even know of their resilience, but do you know of their resistance? Do you know that there is a difference? Do you know that their bodies bled and their bones screamed to give you a voice? Do you even know how to scream? Do you even use your voice? Do you know how to sacrifice? The same way you wish to know what it is to be great, do you know what a sacrifice is? Do you know that sometimes it falls upon a generation to be great? Do you know that that means sacrifice? Do you know that you and I are that generation? Do you know that you and I carry the futures in our palms? Hoping not to return to the highlights in history, do you know Mboisa Makubu and Vilakazi? Do you know me? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Because I see you. And I feel your pain way before I see it. And so I know that you're tired. I know that you feel like you're born a martyr. A hashtag waiting to trend. A coffin picked at your baby shower. But we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to the parts of us that will remain once we're gone. To not only do better. To not only be better, but to fight. Do you even know how to fight? And are you willing to learn? Are you willing to try? Are you willing to bid the comfort of your silence goodbye? And if we die, well then we die. But do you know your power? Do you know the way your body flowers? Do you know that your silence devours and your silence betrays? So I ask you, 
do you really know your trauma and the way that it paints the way that it anchors itself in your name do you know your power and are you willing to use it for change do you know your trauma do you know your pain abolition 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 That was Kevin Snyder laying out the 15 outrageous facts about sex farms during slavery, followed by the poem. This is a wonderful poem by Kegel Saul. Do you know your trauma? If you wow, didn't, Max. now you do. Yeah, if you didn't know, now you know. And wow, and I could, uh, you know, listening through everything. You know, I, I was thinking about uh, Dr. Joy DeGry's, uh post-traumatic slave syndrome and the lessons that she was teaching out. And there was just so many things on that list of the 15. Certain ones stood out for me. You know, when they're talking about, you know, checking with the 15-year-old boys, seeing if they're able to breed. And if not, they're, they're not able to breed, then they would cash them at 15 years old. Or... You know, how if a woman wasn't able to breathe, then she would get, be given the harshest treatment. And yeah. how even the ones where if they were in the house, if the prettiest girls were to give, you know, have a baby by the slave master, that the slave master's wife would behead the children. Or feed them to so the gators. so many things going on. Gator bait, that's where that came from. No black babies was gator bait. Right. The gator baby. Gator babies. So much, yeah. Um, you know, and Ben Carson got to never talk about how our families were stronger. You know, they were talking about how every man was expected to birth to to get twelve babies. To make babies twelve babies. Every man. And one made like two hundred. And then so when we start talking about yeah, when we start thinking about the family traumas that go on, you know, with, you know, having the difficulty of keeping the black family intact is is rooted. We can see the roots to where certain things happen. I'm not excusing certain behaviors that go on, but we we understand where the trauma was put in there. And, you know, uh, psychologists have determined that certain traumas are genetic that they can be passed down through the, through the genes. Right. As, as a tra- we went through the most traumatic experience in human history, or, you know, modern human history that we know of. Anything that happened worse than that, we don't know of it. There's no mention of it in history. You know, so it's not just not something that you can brush off. You know, this right. is generational, generational. This was generations that went through that. Even some of the behaviors of parents, I can, you know, going back to Dr. Joy's teachings, you know, you could think of certain things that our parents have said to us or, you know, things that we've done out in public with our parents, and it traces all the way back to the plantation. Even something as simple as I used to see it myself. I went to school with a lot of white kids and the white parents, you know, my my mother asked about the white parents' children, and they talk about all of their accomplishments and everything. And when it comes time for my mother to say what's going on with me, she'd be like, oh, that boy gives me nothing but trouble. And that traces back to 
when it came time for them to take the child away from the mother, she would say, oh, he's lame. He's, he's no good, you know, because that's her showing her love for her child that she just tried to make him unsellable. That's all she could do is try to talk down. So something as simple as that has been passed down through generations. And I don't want to get right. wordy, Max, because our time is very short. Yeah, it is short. I want to save a couple minutes for Tag. I think he called in now. I thought I saw his number earlier. Yeah, I see it over there. Uh, he wanted to talk about our upcoming event. But I did want to make a couple more comments on what we just heard. In the poem, the question was asked, do you know the difference between resilience and resistance? Because there is a difference between just surviving and trying to stop it. And he said mm-hmm. sometimes it falls on a generation to be great. We are that generation, and we have that opportunity right now to be great. And I don't mean by rebuilding bridges and roads. I mean by bringing freedom to the oppressed who have been under the yoke of this crap for the last 400 years. Let's put an end to it. Right. All right. Um, awesome program. Uh, a lot of informative information, eye-opening, and painful at some places. So uh, next week, we're going to bring in our sister, um, Jamelia Land, as we prepare for our trip to California and the March on for Your Voting Rights event and the anniversary of the ASNN. So with that being said, let me see if I can find him here. There he goes. Uh, yeah, he open up his microphone. Peace. Uh, Tag, uh, welcome back, brother. Uh, we got a couple minutes saved for you. Greatly appreciated. Peace to y'all and, and peace to everyone peeping out abolition today. Peace, brother. So uh, I know that, that minutes are, are running, so I, I did want to definitely shout out a few looks that are coming up. Uh, and and you already mentioned the upcoming webinar, which will be on Wednesday evening. And so I'm down to just add some particulars to that. But uh, so first, I uh, just want to continue to shout out uh, the comrade Kevin Rashid Johnson, who is facing severe repression on the inside. And so um, if you are able, um, please, you know, just continue to make calls uh, on his behalf. Uh, he, he's currently at Lucasville uh, behind a, a surprise um, a surprise transfer. And so, you know, he's somebody that just faces nearly constant repression specifically targeted toward him because of uh, his immense organizing um, artistic, et cetera, efforts. So, um, yeah, just, just want to continue to shout out uh, the brother, Kevin Rashid Johnson, and, um, you know, make sure that these slavers can't uh, continue to, to violate as they have. And um, also tomorrow in Philly, uh, ideally heads have heard, um, but there is going to be uh, an action uh, for Russell Maroon Schultz, a uh, longtime uh, freedom fighter on the inside who was recently denied a petition for, um, for a medical uh, release uh, to, to be in hospice care uh, given the, the severe illness that he's been facing for a minute now, um, which, of course, is only exacerbated by uh, these prison plantation conditions. So he's suffering behind cancer, you know, still uh, recovering from this this uh, CV-19, uh, which he had, 
um, you know, and, and, and numerous other ailments as, as a, an elder on the inside. And, and you know, these, these characters have the nerve to say that, you know, he, he's a flight risk and, and, you know, potential danger to the community. So there's, there's going to be a, a, a major demonstration outside the courthouse in Philly uh, at noon tomorrow behind that. And, um, and you know, the, the guidance on that is, is that everyone wear white. Um, it, it, it's meant to be a, a spiritual uh, demonstration. So if anyone's able to get out to that, um, certainly encouraged to do so. And it looks like there will be a live stream on that as well. So if, if you're not able to get All to right. Philly, with this, you know, um, there, there should be a live stream up um, on YouTube. If you look up hate five six, uh, hate the number five and then six, uh, should be uh, posting up a live stream for that action. And um, and there's a press conference coming up uh, in hey, the city uh, in the Bronx on Friday. We got one minute left, and then we got to close it up. All right. No doubt. No, that sounds perfect. So just I uh, wanted to. Shout out the press conference that's coming up on Friday. That's going to be in the Bronx outside of the Horizon uh, Youth uh, Plantation. So uh, speaking of the, the need for generation, you know, uh, to, to, to pick up uh, this fight and to resist, um, you know. So, so a group called um, the uh, a community um, group uh, that, that is going by um, Eyes on You, is, is holding a press conference outside of that facility in the South Bronx. And uh, you already mentioned the, the webinar, which is coming up, but just, just to give some more particulars, it's, it's called uh, Fulfilling Our Mission, Youth Against Genocide, and that's the fourth webinar for In the Spirit of Mandela, uh, focusing on the youth in particular and, you know, just continuing the work of, of getting the word out about the upcoming tribunal which will be in late October, um, as you mentioned, charging the U.S. with, with these crimes against humanity, including prison slavery, hyperincarceration, uh, environmental racism, the health disparities that we see, which are orchestrated. And okay, Brother Tag, I, I hate to really cut you off, Brother, but our final segment, like we're, we're running up on just getting to the, you know, enough time to put in the final segment. Uh, no doubt. Please that send the information to us. We'll make sure we get it up on our page. Listeners can check no on doubt. the page for more details. But we're just out of time, brother. I apologize to you. All good. Appreciate it. All right. Let's go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsors and close it out with our final segment. Well, we don't even have time to name the sponsors. We're just thankful to them. <laughs> the sponsors know we normally name them, but oh, our final segment. Let's, let's name the sponsors, man. Let's do it. Let's sure. Do it. Jailhouse Lawyers <laughs> Speak. I am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network. Same Urge. Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice. The Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center. Prismatic Dreams. And the Black Talk Radio Network. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com, Abolition Today. Follow us on all major podcast platforms. We're also simulcast on the on Black Talk Radio Network. Remember to go to Abolition uh I forgot it, abolishslavery.us or endtheexception.com. Our final segment, Frederick Douglass Battle with Mr. Covey at Mount Misery. And that's going to be followed by, and that's going to be narrated by Edgar, and then that's going to be followed by The Untouchables, Free Yourself, 
We'll be back next Sunday, inshallah, God willing, with another masterclass on slavery abolition. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace, my brother Max. Peace to all of our listeners, our callers. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. 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 Poor man. Such was his disposition and success at deceiving. I do verily believe that he sometimes deceived himself into the solemn belief that he was a sincere worshiper of the Most High God. And this, too, at a time when he may have been said to have been guilty of compelling his woman slave to commit the sin of adultery. The facts in the case are these. Mr. Covey was a poor man. He was just commencing in life. He was only able to buy one slave, and... Shocking as is the fact, he bought her, as he said, for a breeder. This woman was named Caroline. Mr. Covey bought her from Mr. Thomas Lowe, about six miles from St. Michael's. She was a large, able-bodied woman, about 20 years old. She had already given birth to one child, which proved her to be just what he wanted. After buying her, he hired a married man of Mr. Samuel Harrison to live with him one year, and him he used to fasten up with her every night. The result was that at the end of the year, this miserable woman gave birth to twins. At this result, Mr. Covey seemed to be highly pleased, both with the man and with the wretched woman. Such was his joy, and that of his wife, that nothing they could do for Caroline during her confinement was too good or too hard to be done. The children were regarded as being quite an addition to his wealth. If at any one time of my life more than another, I was made to drink the bitterest dregs of slavery, that time was during the first six months of my stay with Mr. Covey. We were worked in all weathers. It was never too hot, or too cold. It could never rain, blow, hail, or snow too hard for us to work in the field. Work, work, work was scarcely more the order of the day than of the night. The longest days were too short for him, and the shortest nights too long for him. I was somewhat unmanageable when I first went there, but a few months of this discipline tamed me. Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The disposition to read departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me, and behold a man transformed into a brute." Sunday was my only leisure time. I spent this in a sort of beast-like stupor between sleep and wake under some large tree. At times I would rise up. A flash of energetic freedom would dart through my soul, accompanied by a faint beam of hope that flickered for a moment and then vanished. I sank down again, mourning over my wretched condition. I was sometimes prompted to take my life and that of Covey, but was prevented by a combination of hope and fear. My sufferings on this plantation seem now like a dream, 
rather than a stern reality. Our house stood within a few rods of the Chesapeake Bay, whose broad bosom was ever white with sails from every quarter of the habitable globe. Those beautiful vessels, robed in purest white, so delightful to the eye of freemen, were to me so many shrouded ghosts to terrify and torment me with thoughts of my wretched condition. I have often, in the deep stillness of a summer's Sabbath, stood all alone upon the lofty banks of that noble bay, and traced, with saddened heart and tearful eye, the countless number of sails moving off to the mighty ocean. The sight of these always affected me powerfully. My thoughts would compel utterance, and there, with no audience but the Almighty, I would pour out my soul's complaint, in my rude way, with an apostrophe to the moving multitude of ships. You are loosed from your moorings, and are free. I am fast in my chains, and am a slave. You move merrily before the gentle gale, and I sadly before the bloody whip. You are freedom's swift-winged angels that fly round the world. I am confined in bands of iron. Oh, that I were free! Oh, that I were one on your gallant decks and under your protecting wing! Alas, betwixt me and you the turbid waters roll. Go on, go on, oh, that also I could go! Could I but swim, if I could fly! Oh, why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh, God, save me. God, deliver me. Let me be free. Is there any God? Why am I a slave? I will run away. I will not stand it. Get caught or get clear. I'll try it. I had as well die with ague as the fever. I have only one life to lose. I had as well be killed running as die standing. Only think of it. One hundred miles straight north, and I am free. Try it? Yes, God helping me, I will. It cannot be that I shall live and die a slave. I will take to the water. This very bay shall yet bear me into freedom. The steamboats steered in a northeast course from North Point. I will do the same, and when I get to the head of the bay, I will turn my canoe adrift and walk straight through Delaware into Pennsylvania. When I get there, I shall not be required to have a pass. I can travel without being disturbed. Let but the first opportunity offer, and, come what will, I am off. Meanwhile, I will try to bear up under the yoke. I am not the only slave in the world. Why should I fret? I can bear as much as any of them. Besides, I am but a boy, and all boys are bound to someone. It may be that my misery and slavery will only increase my happiness when I get free. There is a better day coming. Thus I used to think, and thus I used to speak to myself, goaded almost to madness at one moment, and at the next, reconciling myself to my wretched lot. I have already intimated that my condition was much worse during the first six months of my stay at Mr. Covey's than in the last six. The circumstances leading to the change in Mr. Covey's course toward me form an epic in my humble history. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. I like to feel like I feel. I like to feel like I feel. I like to feel like I feel. 
abolition, 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 abolition.